Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. What will you do with your time? I've got a job in Ripon. I said I'll start tomorrow. A job? You do know I mean to involve you in the running of the estate. Don't worry. There are plenty of hours in the day. And of course I'll have the weekend. We'll discuss this later. We mustn't bore the ladies. What what is a weekend? The dignified comforts of Downton Abbey. A century ago, the Dowager Countess of Grantham wasn't the only person who might have asked, what is a weekend? Before the 1920s, there was no such thing. No five-day work week, no eight-hour work day. It took an international agreement in 1919 for those things to become reality. And that is when the weekend and our idea of free time came to be. Gary Cross is a distinguished professor emeritus of modern history in the Department of History at Pennsylvania State University. His new book is Free Time, the History of an Elusive Ideal. Gary Cross, good morning. Yeah, hello. It's fascinating to hear. I mean, it's from a TV show, so people may not take it that seriously. But as I say, there was a point in which people might be asking what a weekend was. Why did it take an international agreement to make something like that a reality? Part of the problem is in competitive businesses, which, of course, is our system. If one country or one enterprise reduces work time, then other enterprises that don't may have an economic advantage. And so it was very hard to, as it were, raise the labor standard anywhere without there being a common agreement, often by nation or sometimes by, by uh, business. But in the long run, it required, a, uh, at least in 1919, an international agreement. And this was something that was building for about 40 or 50 years before the event of post-World War I uh, reduction. Before that agreement, how long were we working? Well, it varied, but very often it was about 60 hours. It, of course, mattered a great deal what kind of job you had. But work time at the beginning of the 19th century in a lot of places, particularly factories, uh, tended to actually increase a little bit, sometimes as much as 12 hours a day. But by the end of the, uh, uh, the 19th century, about 10 hours was the kind of standard. I mean, it's interesting because in 1930, the economist John Maynard Keynes predicted that the work week would be something like 15 hours by the 21st century. Um, Why did he make that prediction at that time? What was he seeing that he believed would lead us to be working so much less? Well, this was a kind of a common assumption that uh, economists might call it the two goods maximizing theory or principle. And that is that consumers, workers will have a tendency to try to maximize both their income and their time free from the market, their free time. And as the income rose and goods became available and perhaps even needs were met, then there might be the idea that maybe they should take some of the benefits of productivity in the form of free time. And so Keynes and others assumed that over a period of time, perhaps in his case, 100 years, uh, there would be this uh, kind of reconciliation of these these two goods. More goods, yes, but also considerably more free time. That has not come to pass. 
That hasn't come to pass, in part because initially, at least Keynes and other economists hadn't really anticipated the impact of, well, consumer culture, mm. uh, the growth of needs. There was a kind of a common assumption that the needs could be uh, uh, could be met relatively easily in terms of uh, raiment and housing and whatnot. And of course, those needs have greatly expanded as people got cars and often two or three cars and larger and larger houses, uh, as well as other uh, other expensive services like health care and education. In the book, you talk about how, in many ways, our lives are divided into blocks of time. There's work and then there's freedom. There's, there's obligation and then there's choice. I mean, you've hinted at this, but given those two separate parts of our lives, why is it that we're still working so much? Well, there's a lot of reasons, partly because, as later economists assumed, we have chosen to want more goods than initially had been expected. Uh, and so that requires requires more work, uh, work time. Uh, but it's also a matter of a kind of a basic uh, unwillingness or inflexibility, unwillingness of people or an inflexibility of the uh, system to really change the status quo. I mean, I call the, uh, in America, we in the U.S., we have a 40-hour uh, week that came in 1938. Mm. And I refer to it as a settlement. It's It was a, basically an agreement made at that time, and it has been challenged somewhat, but not at all successfully. I mean, that speaks to, you know, the, the, the subtitle of your book, which is this elusive ideal of free time. Yeah. Part of this is, is and we live now in a time where cost of living crises, precarious work means that people have to work, that they have very little free time. Um, how much of that is a factor? Just the, the nature, you know, you can have choice, but this is also a systemic thing, that people are forced to work more because if they don't, they won't have a roof over their head. They won't have food on the table. Well, one of the things that's happened that kind of speaks to this issue is that when the 40-hour workweek came in 1938, the assumption was that most families would have a male breadwinner and a female, uh, shall we call it caregiver, a uh, person that would take care of, of domestic life. And of course, that has been radically changed, particularly since the 1960s. And it's, it's not a bad thing, but the effect of it is, is that households contribute much more time uh, in the workplace than they once did. And uh, why that has happened, to some extent, it's a matter of women choosing, you know, not to be uh, homemakers. But it also uh, has to do with uh, the raising cost of living, uh, stagnant wages, and to some extent, even uh, expanding needs. If you have children, of course, you have huge costs mm -hmm. of child care and so forth. Uh, so that e explains uh, some of the the kind of urgency to put in working time. You mentioned this briefly. What impact does consumerism have on how free time is allocated in terms of the time that we have, but also how we might spend that time? In in this book, rather than as opposed to earlier things I've written, I've tried to kind of make that consumerism a little a little more sophisticated. It's not just that uh, that people want more things. It's not just that they're materialistic or want to keep up with the Joneses or what have you. But that's part of it, it as well. It, it is part of it, but it also is that the consumerism has has kind of sped up. Uh, I call it fast consumerism. And what, what has happened is that uh, free time is increasingly saturated with goods that come and go quickly, uh, latest fashion, technological goods. There's a 
great turnover of products. It's really easy to get those products. Access is part of the fastness. And to some extent, it's even uh, these goods have become more intense and have uh, kind of captured our attention in ways that they didn't in the past. So the result of that is that free time that isn't filled with goods appears to be kind of wasted time. It's slow time. It's not it's not considered very valuable. It's part of the reason one people like during the uh, COVID times, people who were not working felt sort of uh, out of sorts because in part they, they hadn't developed a, uh, uh, a a different sense of the use of free time except through fast consumption. That the idea is that if we're not doing something, if we're not buying something in particular, um, being involved in that consumerist society that, to your point, moves faster and faster, then we're wasting yeah. our time. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. I mean, in some ways I do. I've been retired for a few years and I need to have things to kind of order my time that uh, make one day different from another. And one of the things I do is write a book. But for most people, uh, that's not available. And and some of uh, uh, an older tradition regarding free time was that people should try to cultivate their personal developments and uh, also uh, engage socially and, uh, and, uh, and otherwise uh, to, through the wider world. And to some extent, that happens in people's free time. But increasingly, it's kind of abbreviated because what has happened is, uh, there's another theme, uh, our our free time has become part of a funnel where we as uh, as individuals are at the, the bottom of the funnel experiencing access to the wider world, like say through the internet, uh, but we do it in ways that uh, cuts us off from other people and, and even from uh, a, a stronger sense of an integral, a kind of uh, coherent self as we kind of move serially through through different enthusiasms uh, on the internet or in the media or what have you. That doesn't sound particularly enjoying at all, enjoyable at all, the way that you described that. <laughs> it doesn't, and I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a little harsh. Um, in a lot of ways, that, that funneling process is uh, a way in which we get what people in the past thought should be the use of free time. We get individual choice and we get access to a broader world. And that is something that uh, it strikes me is is worthy. But in certain ways, the, the modern funnel, as I call it, is kind of truncated. It's kind of limited as opposed to those earlier ideals. Do you think that we've seen that as an acceptable trade-off, that we will have less free time? We may have to work more. We might be enmeshed in that consumerist society, but we're going to get more of the stuff that we want. I think a lot of people are satisfied with it. Uh, and that's, that is, of course, some of the, uh, the problem because it becomes difficult for the rest of us to, uh, to experience free time differently uh, without feeling uh, kind of left out, as it were. And so, uh, you know, th that's an issue. But it, it does strike me is that if you kind of even look a little bit beyond that, that idea of more free time and a better use of free time to think about whether this choice of more consumption is one that is ultimately sustainable. I think it may kind of lead people to think of maybe free time and consumption a little bit differently. The obvious issue is that uh, kind of a, a heavy stress upon growth, limitless growth, limitless consumption is not 
sustainable environmentally. The uh, changes in the economy uh, are going to lead to um, a de- degree of unemployment where that you have people who are working long hours and people don't have jobs at all. And also, of course, we have that family crisis that I, I've mentioned before. And if you think about all those issues in the context of uh, free time and consumption, uh, it gives you a reason to think that maybe we ought to reassess uh, our previous uh, 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 decisions, that old settlement of 1938. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. What do you think people could be doing with their free time? I mean, I think of of people saying, often kids will say, I'm bored. And they will want to be doing something. But there was a time in which being bored might have been a good thing. People may choose to, you know, have their mind go fallow because it allows them to reset things. It allows them to regenerate. It allows them to take a break from everything that's around them. What could we be doing with our free time, do you think? Right, right. Well, this whole issue of boredom is a very interesting one. Uh, Historians point out that people in the past didn't feel bored, or if they did, as you say, they saw it as something that was positive in the sense uh, that it uh, gave you an opportunity to introspect, shall we say, to kind of reassess your life or reassess your relationships or just simply enjoy the environment. And uh, uh, the problem, of course, is this fast consumption I talk about intensifies this problem of boredom because what happens is that when you get that new car or you get, uh, you know, the new fad of whatever it may be, the thrill of it leaves very quickly and you feel a need to replace it with a new fad or a new object. And that, uh, that of course, becomes uh, a kind of a driving uh, response um, and leads to the perpetuation of that kind of consumer capitalism. We live in a time now where people are trying to figure out how to create more free time. And so you'll see self-help books. Uh, if you pass through a bookstore, you know, particularly sure. at the airport, everybody seems to have a guide into how you can have more free time, how you can have a better work-life balance, for example. What do you make of that phrase? Well, I, I mean, I've read some of those books too, of course, uh, and I refer to them in, in, in my introduction. Part of the problem with the work-life balance is that it deals almost exclusively with personal attitudes, and it's directed toward, well, people who go to airports, usually kind of middle class and and relatively wealthy people. Uh, And the books generally suggest, well, maybe you need to change your attitude about work a bit, maybe become uh, a little more reluctant to take that extra business meeting or what have you. Or some of them just basically tell you to kind of work through it. Uh, and the the bigger problem is that a lot of people don't have those sorts of choices uh, and are not in any kind of position to create a work-life balance because, well, they have to work in order to get the benefits they need um, to sustain themselves and their families. How do you change that? 
that's the kind of, well, the old $64,000 question. It's very difficult in our culture, both because of the huge political resistance uh, to any change in, in a basically growth-oriented, consumption-oriented economy. Although that, that is largely, that, I mean, people will point to what happens in, in North America, certainly, but in other countries, you think yeah. of, of, of some European countries and elsewhere, there is a much... Yeah greater focus on actually not, you know, working to live, um, right. but living to work and, 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 and right. how that balance can be reversed or, or, or rethought so that you're not just, you know, waking up every day thinking that, that's the point of your, of your life is to go in and, and punch the clock. You do point out a, a big issue that there are these huge differences between the U.S., which is kind of notorious for, for example, there is no statutory vacation time. There's no statutory uh, paid uh, family leave. Uh, there's a very, very weak uh, statute on uh, on family leave. There's no pay involved in it. It's short. It's limited to certain businesses and the like. And that that kind of speaks to, uh, uh, to a culture uh, that is in some ways quite unique as opposed to Europe where there's a uh, and perhaps Canada where there is a uh, a greater sense of the need for balance we've spoken with a number of, of organizations businesses uh, um, large and small that are moving towards for example a four-day work week right what's what's stopping us from from seeing that standard five-day work week chopped down a day well it I think it's possible in certain businesses particularly ones that that maybe aren't facing a lot of international competition but uh, but also that that are just simply in a better economic position to introduce a four-day uh, work week the uh, problem of course is that like in the 19th century there were individual enterprises uh, that introduced shorter work weeks uh, um, and early uh, 20th century Henry Ford introduced an eight-hour day before anybody else but nobody else uh, no other automobile company introduced it and so it's really hard to quite imagine how you'll be able to uh, to change the standards we have without some kind of, uh, if not uh, international agreement, perhaps a, a, uh, a national law or some other way of uh, encouraging uh, a kind of uniformity uh, about the standard uh, work week. Could artificial intelligence do this? I mean, there's great fears that AI will put us all out of work. But if it doesn't do that, the belief is that perhaps it will eliminate some of the drudgery of work, paperwork and scheduling sure. and some of that, the tasks that, that could be outsourced to a machine and that that might give us a bit more free time. Do you, do you put any faith in that? Well, part of the problem, uh, of course, is who owns the uh, artificial intelligence and what their 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 interests are. Um, that their interests might be know, to get us to work more. Well, or their interests might be to eliminate uh, eliminate workers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we haven't. I mean, over and over. People on the left, labor and whatnot, have predicted uh, technological unemployment, and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, but my guess is that's maybe not the case in the future. Uh, and then the question is, what happens to the people who uh, who aren't working? You know, because of technological changes, uh, how do they get access to the goods and the comforts of life that are required? And it strikes me as one way to do that is to, uh, and this is an old idea, uh, is to reduce, reduce the work week and to spread the work about. Is the conversation around this different, do you think, in the wake of the worst of the pandemic? 
um, where people, not everybody, a lot of people were working more, a lot of people were not able to work from home, but there were a large number of people who saw their lives completely change when it came to the relationship between work and everything else. Are we thinking differently now about that? I think some people are. I, I think the the stress of family and work has become more evident um, and insofar as, well, particularly here, uh, where a lot of children were uh, obliged to stay at home rather than going to school, mm-hmm. uh, there were serious problems with daycare and, uh, and whatnot. It's one of the reasons, of course, that birth rates have dropped so much in the past few years. Uh, so, you know, that, that kind of tension has expanded. And perhaps some people who uh, were, were left out of work or, uh, you know, obliged to, uh, uh, to leave the workplace and stay at home, uh, the whole issue of what to do with free time, maybe that also was, uh, uh, was enhanced and increased. Uh, and so I, it strikes me is that that some of the issues that have been underlying this problem of, of work time and how we use it uh, have been kind of intensified from from the time of COVID. If you go back um, just finally to those blocks of time that we talked about earlier, you know, work and freedom, what, why do you think people should aspire to have more free time? Well, I think there's a good argument that that free time is the place in uh, in which we make ourselves and our relationships with other people. And it's not to denigrate work. I mean, here I am, I'm writing books, I'm 77. What am I doing this for? I like work, you know. But on the other side, uh, there is a there is really a need for understanding uh, that we can be much more than the person that earns income, the person that is uh, engaged in in uh, a uh, an economy, uh, and that freedom should be at least an important part of of our lives. I mean, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, there were a lot of folks who were thinking, gee, what are the effects of this huge improvement in productivity is that people will be liberated from from uh, uh, from work and uh, and from the drudgery of of machines and uh, and offices. Uh, and able to develop themselves. It doesn't have to be high culture. It could be gardening or hunting or whatever, uh, and uh, developing the relationships with other people. And it strikes me as that's kind of missing very often from from our, our thinking about the economy. They said the same thing around smartphones, um, and that didn't go yeah. particularly well either. Uh, yeah. History is not a predictor of what will happen in the future, but do you think we'll get there? Will we get to I mean, what Keynes was thinking of, of a 15-hour work week, or will we get to a place where we are um, not defined by our employment? Well, I think it, it will require a lot of changes in attitude uh, and also a certain changes in politics. People will have to start raising this issue more directly than they have been in the past. There was some discussion of this uh, in the U.S. at the beginning of the Biden administration about family leave and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, it kind of gets it gets lost in the culture wars and lost in traditional uh, economic and political thinking. And so we, we need to really kind of move on two fronts, the, the kind of political one and as well as the personal one to, to, to change this. What do you enjoy doing in your free time? Well, I like taking walks and talking to people. At the same time? 
usually I meet them while I'm taking a walk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, a good conversationalist with strangers. I'm glad to have that chance to talk to you. Um, this is, as you said, an elusive ideal, something that people strive towards and often feel frustrated that they don't get nearly close enough to. Um, Gary Cross, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I had a good time. Gary Cross is the author of Free Time, The History of an Elusive Ideal. How have you carved out free time in your life? What is, I mean, what's the value of free time? But also if you do have a little bit of that, and as we said, it's an elusive ideal, um, what are you doing in your free time? Is there something that allows you to signify that this is not work? Put the phone in the freezer, go for a walk, be in a quiet space, or maybe be with a lot of people. Um, and it's just a conversation that has nothing to do with anything that would be connected with your work. What are you doing with the free time that you have and how are you getting that free time? Email us, thecurrent at cbc.ca or send us a voice memo on your phone. Just pull out the phone and record it and then email it to thecurrent at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.